0: And that is the brand new series that we will be beginning the week after Easter. This is, this, I'm telling you, this is something that's never happened in the triangle. Over 50 churches in the triangle, 14 different cities. We're going to be doing the exact same series, talking about the exact same topics at the exact same time. The first week after Easter, we're going to address the question, is there a God? The second week, if there is a God, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Is Christianity the only way? The fourth week, is the Bible true? Is it reliable? Can we really depend on it? And then the last week, can I know God? personally. It is going to be incredible. If you would like to be a facilitator at one of the discussion groups, you can go to the app, the website, just go and, and, and just find explore God. It will give you all the information, but see, this is why it's so important that you invite people for Easter, because we're going to be talking about the questions that your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, your relatives, these are the questions that they're answering. And in Christ, we have, we have the answer. We have the answer. And you need to get them here on Easter because we're going to talk about evidence of the resurrection. Because I got to tell you, if there is no resurrection, we have no faith. We might as well just sell this mess and go to the beach, right? So it's so important that you get them here on Easter. So invite, 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 pray, go online. Get your tickets. We have 19 services spread out over three days across our campuses. Uh, we have an eight o'clock service at each of our campuses on Easter Sunday morning. Think of it as a sunrise service. That's the closest we're ever going to get to hope to sunrise, right? But come to that eight o'clock, but leave those primetime services, especially on Sunday for those who are going to come in from the community to join us. If you're going out of town, maybe for spring break, we actually have our first Easter service on Friday night at the Raleigh campus. So you, maybe you can catch that one before you get out of town. I met someone already who said, well, we leave for Haiti to go down and do some mission work on Saturday, but we're going to be here on Friday night. So that's the kind of thinking I like. So it's going to be exciting. Pray for God to move. I believe God's going to do some amazing things. Now, as we said last week, one of the great temptations in our life is to try to resist God and to resist what God wants to do in our life. And often we will find ourselves, as, as dumb as it sounds, we'll say no to God. No, God, I don't want you to work in this area of my life. But I think often in the heat of the moment, it just seems like it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And last week we saw this in the life of Caiaphas. This week, we're going to see it in the life of Judas. And as much as we hate Judas, right? As much as we despise Judas, as much as we're never going to name any of our kids Judas. By the way, let me just say, I just had a brand new grandson last week. His name is Judah. What a difference an H make. You know what I'm saying? In fact, I have his picture. I want you to see how much he looks like me. (laughs) I'm just kidding. This is his real picture. This is, this is, this is Judah Michael Lee. See, that's a good looking kid. Now I may slip in this message and call Judas, Judah, or Judah, Judas. It could happen. That's okay. I'm his grandpa. You do it. I'll punch you in the throat. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. But as much as we hate Judas, as much as we would never name our kids Judas, I want you to know there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. And I say something, I say that because there's something in all of us where from time to time, let's be honest, we want to negotiate with God we want to do a deal with God. And if you don't believe that, just think about our prayers. I mean, if we're honest, our prayers basically sound like this. God, if I, will you? And God, since I, shouldn't you? And God, have you considered? In other words, instead of just coming to God from the standpoint, God, I just surrender to you. I just want to follow you. Forget my will, God. It's about your will in my life. Instead of that, we have a tendency to come to God from the standpoint, hey, God, Let's see if we can't make a deal. And I know you don't think about it that way, but for some of you, that describes your entire relationship with God. You're always trying to do a deal with God. You want to know, what am I going to get out of it? God, if I will you, you want to know that there's something in it for you. Now we're going to see it this week in the life of Judas. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. While you're turning, let me give you just a little bit of background to bring us up to speed. If you've ever taken the time to read the Gospels, and when we talk about the Gospels, we're talking about the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They give us the account of Jesus' life and ministry on this earth. If you've ever read those Gospels, you know that when Jesus went public with his ministry at the age of 30, he was constantly talking about his coming kingdom. And so Judas, being one of the disciples, naturally assumed that one day Jesus was gonna lead a rebellion. He was gonna overthrow Rome because at this time Israel was living under Roman rule. He was gonna overthrow Rome and then he was gonna take his rightful place as the new king of Israel. And of course, if you're Judas and if you're a Jew, you want to be close to the guy who's gonna be the next king of the Jews. So Judas is right there. He hung close to Jesus. But understand, Judas wasn't the only disciple Who thought this way. In fact, most of the disciples were not following Jesus for the sake of following Jesus. Most of the disciples were following Jesus for what they could get out of it. In fact, there's an interesting verse, Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, where Peter said to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus, what's in it for us? What are we going to get out of it? There was another time when the disciples were sitting around and they were arguing about when Jesus did set up his kingdom, who was going to be the greatest? Who was going to have the most power? Who was going to have the most influence? Who was going to sit on his right hand? Who was going to sit on his left hand? They were having these conversations all the time. But it's interesting, as time went by, the disciples began to understand, whoa, this Jesus that we're following, he doesn't make deals. He's not a guy who makes bargains. He's simply looking for people who were just 100% willing to fully support, uh, to fully surrender and follow him. And it's interesting, if you read the Gospels, eventually the disciples got to the place where they were willing to lay down their agenda. In fact, as we're gonna see on Easter weekend, they were even willing to die for Jesus, all except Judas. Judas never got there, he was never able to fully surrender. He followed, he listened. He observed, he hoped, he anticipated. He kept waiting for Jesus to establish his earthly kingdom. But then as time went on, Judas finally realized that Jesus wasn't going to do that. He wasn't going to do the deal. And Judas began to think, you know, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I miscalculated. Maybe I somehow made a bad decision. Maybe... Maybe it's time to cut my losses. And I think that there was one particular incident in Matthew chapter 26 that seemed to send Judas right over the edge. I mean, this is the proverbial straw that seemed to break the camel's back. If you have your Bibles this weekend, Matthew chapter 26, if not, you can go to the app or the verses will be on the screen, beginning in verse one. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. Now, you probably know that the Passover was a huge, massive Jewish festival, and it was a time when the Jews would get together and they would celebrate their deliverance from 430 years of bondage and slavery to Egypt. You know the story, the 10 plagues, how Moses led them to freedom. And so during this festival, historians would tell us that about two and a half Jews would pour in to the streets of Jerusalem to celebrate and to remember God's faithfulness. But according to verse 3, not everybody's celebrating. It says, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. We talked about him last weekend. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So understand Caiaphas and his cohorts, these religious leaders, they have a problem. They want to kill Jesus, but they know they can't pull it off during the festival and they can't pull it off because by now, three years into his ministry, Jesus has a lot of followers and those followers are in Jerusalem. And they knew that if they were to try to arrest Jesus and kill Jesus, a riot could break out. Rome would come in and squash the rebellion. They would probably lose everything. So they basically sit back, stroke their beards and wait for just the right moment. And then when you get to verse six of Matthew 26, the scene changes from Jerusalem to a little mountain village, a little hamlet called Bethany. It's just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And it says in verse six, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, by the way, Jesus was there for a meal. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think typically you would want to eat with a leper. There's just something unappetizing about the possibility of one of his fingers dropping into the soup sometime during the meal. But fortunately, Jesus has already healed Simon the leper, but he's still called Simon the leper, which is a great reminder. sometimes our past is hard to shake, right? So it says in verse six, "While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now Mark in his gospel says that this was nard, a very expensive perfume, that it was worth about 300 denarii. That doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but a denarius was considered to be the equivalent of a one-day wage in Jerusalem at this time in the first century. 200 denarii was considered a year's wage. So 300 denarii, that would be like, you know, working at SAS. I mean, that's like Disney World over there, right? Making a really, really good wage. And so while Jesus is reclining at the table, this woman, she comes up, she breaks this vase, and she pours this incredibly expensive perfume over his head. Now, you got to understand, it's an incredible expression of worship and love, but not everybody is crazy about what's going on. Because you got to remember, Jesus is surrounded by a group of guys, his disciples. And these guys are used to pretty much living one meal to the next, day to day, pretty much a hand-to-mouth existence as they're following Jesus. And so this extravagance made absolutely no sense to them whatsoever. So it says in verse 8, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. They were mad. They were angry. Now, we don't know if they were angry at the woman for doing this, or if they were angry at Jesus for allowing her to do this. But notice what it says, why this waste? They asked this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. In other words, Jesus were only concerned about the poor. I mean, Jesus, if she would have just sold this perfume, I mean, we're talking about a year and a half worth of a salary. Think of the people that we could have fed with all of this money. What a waste just to use it on you. By the way, John in his gospel gives us some additional insight into this event. John writes in John chapter 12, verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him objective. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wage. Now notice this. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. In other words, by the time of this event, Judah wasn't in it because of Jesus. Judas was in it because of Judas. It was all about what's in it for me. What am I going to get out of this? How can I leverage Jesus for my purpose? In fact, it's now to the point that we read that Judas is stealing from the group's bank account. And when you think about it, that's not very smart. I mean, that's not very wise. If you read the gospels, you could tell there's times Jesus knew what people were thinking because he would answer their question before they asked it. So he probably knew what Judas was doing also, right? So probably not very smart. But on this occasion, Judas watched this woman pour this expensive perfume on Jesus's head and he goes nuts. And maybe he just leaned over to Peter and said, Peter, would you look at that? Wow, what a waste. We could have we had her sell that perfume. We could have used that money to help with the poor. You need to say something to Jesus. He'll listen to you. I've tried to talk to him. He won't listen to me. But my point is this, Judas, he's in the background, he's stirring the pot. See, he's thinking, if we keep wasting money like this, we're never going to have the resources to overthrow Rome. We're never going to have the resources to set up a kingdom. This is going nowhere. Now, if we go back to Matthew chapter 26, it says in verse 10, Aware of this and all the drama that's going on. Sometimes if you read the gospels, you know, the the disciples, they were kind of like the real housewives of Jerusalem. I mean, that was just drama all the time, right? But aware of all this drama, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Here's the phrase in case you wondered where it came from. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And when the disciples heard the word burial, they're like, What? Jesus, that's crazy talk. You're going to be the new king. You're not even sick. Heck, you heal the sick. You just raised Lazarus from the dead. Why are you even talking about deaths and burials? But you got to understand, this was the final straw for Judas. He has heard enough, he's seen enough, and he realizes this is not gonna work out the way I thought it was going to work out. He realizes Jesus isn't going to overthrow Rome. He's not gonna set up a kingdom on this earth. He realizes he's not gonna be a charter member of his cabinet. He realizes that he's walked away from everything that was important to him, his family, his job, his financial stability, maybe the hope of a future. He's walked away from all of that to follow Jesus. And here he is three years in and absolutely nothing to show for it. And so he makes a decision, verse 14. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? In other words, hey guys, you got a second? I want to talk to you about something. I've been following Jesus around Palestine for over three years now. It's gotten me nowhere. I was wondering, are you interested making a deal? How much would you consider giving me to rat Jesus out? And they respond, I don't know. How about 30 pieces of silver? And Judas is like, let shake on it, done. By the way, I told you before, Exodus chapter 21, verse 32 says, 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave that had been gored uh, by, a, by a bull. So it was the price of a damaged slave. And for 30 pieces of silver, that amount, Judas threw Jesus under the bus. And Judas will always be a mystery to us. And we hear the story of Judas and we think, how could somebody betray Jesus? I mean, everybody likes Jesus. Who doesn't like Jesus? I've often said, people who don't go to come to church, it's not because they don't like Jesus. They like Jesus. They can't stand us. See, it's Christians that are so obnoxious. Everybody loves Jesus. So why would Judas betray Jesus? Very simple. Let me give you the principle. When our agenda takes precedence over God's agenda, we have set ourselves up to betray our heavenly father. Let me put it another way. When what we want for our lives becomes more important than what God wants for our life, we have set ourselves up to betray our Heavenly Father. And I understand we would never do it consciously, but you got to understand that's that's why Judas betrayed Jesus. There was something Judas wanted more than Jesus could deliver, more than Jesus had to offer. He wanted what Judas wanted. And so in that instant of a second, he decided to go to the dark side. And it says in verse 15, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, let me tell you what's going on. He gets his money. He goes back to the group. Do you know where the group is? They're gathered in the upper room, having that Passover meal with Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus does after Judas returns is that he gets up from the table, he removes his outer robe, he gets a basin of water and a towel, and he washes the disciples' feet, all the disciples' feet, and that would include the feet of Judas. In other words, he took Judas's filthy sandals off of his filthy feet, And he washed his feet, knowing fully where Judas has been and what he's already done. In other words, Jesus just goes on and acts as if nothing happened. Then he puts his robe back on and he gathers back with the men at the table and joins them. And then Jesus drops this bomb. He says, listen, guys, one of you is going to betray me. And there was an emotional explosion. You can imagine, looks across the table, pointing questions, is it you? Is it What's going on, is it you? You know, you said this, I noticed you the other day talking to so Who? And then somewhere in the midst of all of this emotion, Judas looked at Jesus, probably assuming Jesus knew, but maybe fishing a little bit, and he said, Jesus, is it me? And Jesus is like, yeah, it's you. And you know it's you. And Judas, I realize you had big plans and I realize that none of this has worked out like you've planned. I realize you've got another deal. Go right ahead and do the deal. I am not going to do anything to stop you. Now, when you think about it, isn't that unbelievable? And I wonder if Judas thought, wow, you are one pathetic excuse for a messiah. I mean, to sit here, to look me in the eyes, to know what I'm about to do and to do nothing, you're a coward. You're not a king. You're not a Messiah. I mean, who in their right mind, knowing what I'm getting ready to do, just sits here and does nothing? And he heads out into the night and he sets the scene for the arrest and the trial of Jesus. And and Jesus does absolutely nothing to stop him nothing. And if you don't hear anything else or get anything else out of this talk this weekend, hear this. The reason that Jesus did absolutely nothing is because Jesus doesn't deal. He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't bargain. He doesn't trade. He doesn't barter. He doesn't have to do that. See, he's a king. And Judas watches. Jesus was arrested and He watched as Jesus didn't put up a fight, and then Judas watched as all the disciples deserted Jesus and fled, and then it was like the light came on and it finally occurred to Judas, they're gonna actually kill him. I don't think Judas ever thought that it would ever go this far. And I say that because it says in Matthew chapter 27, verse three, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. But I want you to notice, what is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. I want us to say those three words out loud together. Really, here we go. That's your responsibility. Say it one more time. That's your responsibility. So in this intense moment of isolation, Judas hears these words. Hey, buddy, this was your idea. This was your deal. You approached us. You set this up. Sorry, Judas. Consequences are on you. Deal with it. And on his way out, God struck him down with a bolt of lightning. Nope. He left frustrated, hopped on his donkey, driving way too fast, came to the intersection of 1st and Main in downtown Jerusalem, ran the stop sign, had a head-on collision with another donkey, Judas went right through the ears, <laughs> Killed him instantly, nope. Died in his sleep that night due to a mysterious fire. It says in verse five, Judas threw the money into the temple and left, then he went away and hanged himself. No lightning bolt necessary, no donkey accident necessary, no strange disease or mysterious fire necessary. See, God doesn't need to do that. God doesn't need to stoop that low. He doesn't need to enter into the world of, if you do that, then I'm gonna do this. In fact, you you notice in the story, at the end of the day, God doesn't have to do anything. And it's because Judas hung himself. And I got to tell you, Judas's legacy is the legacy of any person who tries to bargain and deal with God. It's the legacy of any person who's in a relationship with God just for what they can get out of it. And the lesson is this, God's hand cannot be forced and his will cannot be stopped. But I'm just going to step on some toes for a minute here. And I'm going to say for some of you, if you're honest, your whole approach to God has been the bargaining thing. You're like, God, I know it was wrong for me to have sex with that woman I met at the bar, but I'm in church this weekend. And you kind of expect God to say, you're right, I saw you. And I noticed you even tried to sing. I think I'm just gonna let it slide. I'm gonna make sure your wife never finds out about it. Like God's impressed that you showed up for church. Or God, I know, I know, I know, I cheated on my income tax. But God, I gave up Brussels sprouts for Lent. I mean, that, that's kind of a, right? Or I cheated on my exam, but I made it a small group. You know, like somehow that, you know. I'm telling you, when we approach God and we live that way, it's as if we are calling God stupid. But see, this is what you need to hear. God doesn't deal, God doesn't bargain. It's not, if you, I will. He doesn't work that way, he's God. And if you are a person who tries to approach God from the standpoint of, God, let's make a deal. I need to close this by just sharing some principles with you. Here's the first one. If you're trying to work out a deal with God so you can get away with something, my advice is just go ahead and do it. How's that good sound advice from your pastor? But you didn't get that at your last church, did you? Just go ahead and do it. Just like with Judas, God probably, he's probably not gonna do anything to stop you. If you decide that you're gonna cheat on your spouse and meet up with somebody at the no motel, motel you're, you're, you're probably not gonna have an accident on the way. God's probably not gonna give you a heart attack. No lightning bolt's probably gonna strike. It's because you gotta understand, God doesn't deal in those terms. Now, let me just say this. There are exceptions, so be careful. But i am be honest with you, for the most part, if there's something you wanna try and get away with, go ahead and try it. God is probably not gonna to try to stop you because God doesn't have to stoop to that level. But this brings me to the second one. You're responsible for the outcome of your decisions. And you know what, as Christians initially, that doesn't even bother us, Do you know why? Because we think we're so cool, we think we're so smart, we think that we're so slick, you know, that somehow we're gonna pull the wool over, God's eyes, or we're so charming, you know, we'll just go back and say, sorry, you know, and it'll all be fine. But you need to know that when you work against God, you are responsible for the outcome of that decision. And when it blows up in your face, you can't come back and say, but I didn't think, I I didn't realize, you know, just like the Pharisees said to Judas, you know, at that point, that's your responsibility. That's your responsibility. You decided to do the deal. You're on your own. Here's the third one. If you choose to work against God, eventually you will begin to self-destruct. I'm just gonna tell you based on 36 years of doing this, people who intentionally work against God, make the decision to work against his principles, his precepts, his truth. Are you listening to me? Always self-destruct. No lightning bolts necessary, no strange disease, no car accident. Hey, Judas hung himself, he didn't need any help. And I promise you, if you do this, if you go down that road, eventually you will hang yourself. God won't have to intervene. It is just a natural consequence of trying to do life contrary to God. You know what it's called? It's called the law of diminishing returns. Eventually it will catch up. Eventually you'll hang yourself. Now I see this all the time. See, It's the college student or the single adult who's trying to get the guy, get the girl and God's not cooperating and the reason God's not cooperating is because God's smarter than you. And he knows that situation is not good and that relationship's not right and it's not going to right. It's not going to be right and it's not going to be healthy. So you kind of get the attitude, forget God, I'll do this myself. So you get the girl, you get the guy and then you have to deal with the consequences of it not being right. Or it's the person who has the affair. And it just seems so right. And it destroys everything. Hey, you want to know what the hardest part of my job is? Without a doubt, and I've had this conversation with Gary and other staff, it's when I have to sit down with people who realize after it's too late, after the whole foundation of their life is crumbling, after they're losing everything, and the realization hits them it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. And they're like, I should have listened to God. Because now I realize I'm responsible for my decision, and, and, and I don't like the outcome, right? See, God doesn't have to do anything. You'll take care of that yourself. And here's the fourth one: At the end of the day, you're going to come back to God. And when you come back, you're not going to come back to strike a bargain or deal. You're going to come back with your hands in the air saying, "I give." God, I surrender. I don't like where the journey took me, but I realize I'm responsible for the outcome and I surrender. And I'll tell you this, you'll come back with scars that you'll have for the rest of your life. You will come back with memories that you will not be able to erase. You will come back with some broken dreams and some busted up relationships. I'm just gonna be honest with you that never ever will be able to be repaired. But when you come back, this is the good news. Your heavenly father will receive you because he's that kind of God. He's a God of grace and mercy, but I gotta be honest with you. He's not the kind of God that erases consequences. See, he loves you too much for that. By the way, and I think it's appropriate that we're at Palm Sunday weekend. If there ever was a person who had the leverage to do a deal with God, it was Jesus. And if there was ever a time when he needed to pull off a deal with God, it was in the garden of Gethsemane. Remember that where he was so stressed out. They said he was, he was, he was dripping, like sweating, great drops of blood. And Jesus went before the father and he says, father, I, I need something from you. Give me something that will prevent me from having to go through this suffering. But even more, God, give me something. Come on, let's work out a deal. So I don't have to take on the sins of the world. I don't want to experience that when you turn your back on me. I'd like a detour. God, if there's any way around this suffering, give me something. Give me something. But I'm not going to strike a deal, God. I'm not going to say, hey, if you'll do A, I'll do B. But I told you what I want. But now your will be done. Your will be done. So when you think about your approach to God, here's my question I want you to think about this week. Have you gotten to the point where you're willing to say, no more dealing, no more bargaining? I wanna begin my mornings and I wanna end my day saying, not my will, God, your will be done. God, this is what I desire. This is what I think I need, God. God, this is what I really crave but I'm not offering you something in return. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just laying it out there. I'm just telling you, but at the end of the day, God, what I'm interested in more than anything, it's not what I crave, not what I want, not what I desire. What I'm really interested in, God, is your will for my life. No bargaining, I'm just gonna surrender. No more negotiating, I'm just gonna surrender. But understand, when you make that decision, your heavenly father, see, he takes responsibility for the outcome of the journey that he's gonna take you on. But until you make that decision, your legacy will be the legacy of individuals like Caiaphas, like Judas, and at the end of the day, the morals of the story will always be the same. God's hand cannot be forced. His will cannot be stopped. And for those of us who live our lives attempting to do that, I just tell you this, the consequences will always be the same. Hurt, pain, regret. So are you bargaining and bartering with God? Or are you ready to surrender? He's gonna win every time, every time. Let's bow together. I wanna do something a little different this weekend. I think it's appropriate as we're heading into Easter week and as we think back through the events that took place in the last few days of Jesus and the price he paid so that we could be reconciled back into a relationship with God. Let me just ask you this question. How's your relationship with God? Does it kind of fall into the description of, Hey God, let's make a deal. where you feel like that you can live outside the circle of God's truth and principles and precepts, and then somehow negotiate some kind of settlement with God, God, I'll go to church, God, I'll give some money, God, I'll help feed the poor. And somehow God's gonna act like it's okay that it never happened. Let me just encourage you before, before it gets too late, before you get too far down that road before you begin to experience the consequences, before you hang yourself. Have you ever just surrendered to God? Have you ever, have you ever done what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 12 when he says, I, I crawl up on the altar and I present myself a living sacrifice? God, from here on out, it's not about my dreams, my desires, my wants. It's about your will in my life. If you've ever done that, and you have a tendency to stray because you're more interested in what you want than what God wants, what people's heads are about, I'm just gonna ask you just to stand. And it'll take a little bit of courage, but if you stand in just a second, I'm gonna pray for everyone who stands and says, you know, this weekend, I I just wanna surrender. I just want to surrender. Anybody want to stand? I'll pray. Father, you see these individuals. You know their hearts, you know their lives, you know their situations. You created them. You knit them together in their mother's womb. You know every aspect and you love them unconditionally. But you wouldn't be a good father if you let us just do our things. We wouldn't think any parent would be a good parent who just let their child run wild and get away with everything. We would never say they were a good parent. We would say they were a horrible parent. And Father, in the very same way, you have a plan for our life, plan to prosper us, not to harm us. But that's dependent on us willing to live in an attitude that says, "God's not my will not my desires, your will be done in my life. I thank you for those who are standing. I thank you that you've brought them to a crossroad where they can make the right decision that God, I'm I'm just gonna surrender to you and where you take me, I'll gladly follow. And Father, I thank you for consequences that perhaps will not be experienced now because they've made the right decision and they've turned back to you. And I pray for those that maybe are praying this prayer in their heart and maybe they just didn't have the courage to stand. And that's okay. You know their heart. But may this be a day, may this be a memorial where these individuals will remember this is the time I laid it all on the altar. I surrendered 100% to God. It's about his will in my life, not my will and desires for myself. We thank you for this lesson, unfortunately, at the stake of Judas's life. And Father, we pray we'll learn from this so we don't make these same kinds of mistakes. That you're not a God that bargains and barters. You're a holy God. And you've called us to obey you and to follow you. And we surrender to that in your name we pray. Would everybody else just stand now? And God, as we leave here this weekend, fill us with your power and your spirit. May we we be a shining light to our community, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw people towards you. May we go out, may we invite, may we pray, may we love on people this week, realizing if we can just get them here on Easter, they they may hear a message from you that will change their life forever. We all know people who need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Help us to take advantage of this opportunity. And we wait with anticipation, Father, to see what you're going to do. In your name we pray, and you will get all the credit and the glory. Amen.